title of this workshop, the word games, the games of empire, is a nod, as many of you are perhaps aware, to a phrase that was developed in the 20th century of the great game that was played out between Britain, so-called Great Britain, not now not so great, and uh, Russia at that point, uh, over Asia, over the control of Asia. Uh, it was like, took, as took place in the late 19th century of Africa. It was a question of the spoils uh, that could be harnessed and be colonized. And this is, as we all know, has taken place in every continent across the world that empires have done this. Well, clearly we're at a time where we, can, we know that both the, uh, the British Empire and the Soviet Empire have collapsed. We can see before our eyes the US Empire collapsing. It's disintegrating. But new empires are taking their shape, both sub-imperial empires, whether of major countries such as India, China, Brazil, Turkey, Indonesia, you can name them across the globe, who are working to exercise influence economically, politically, and otherwise, in terms of intelligence also, in their spheres of influence. And there's the transnational empire of uh, international capital which is borderless and seamless across the world, which is also exercising its own separate imperial role. And all of this together is what is contributed to what, is, what we are uh, politely told is called climate change. But I think what we are seeing today is that Mother Nature is also becoming an actor in this process and exercise, beginning to exercise her immense and awesome powers in the context of this, in terms of the, the agony of the, of the pain that has been exercised on Mother Earth in this period. And I think that much, in my personal view, that much of the insurrection, and there are million mutinies that are today taking place across the world, are a function of our being organically linked and a part of the web of life on Mother Earth. We can feel this in our blood, in our souls, that there's something fundamentally wrong in the world, and we are spurred to action. So it, it is, I, I think we're living in a time of enormous flux, and it's at this time that we're holding this meeting, um, where we are tempt to, tempting to see whether we can uh, express some of this to each other, share it, share our doubts, our worries, our panic. I remember calling once a meeting nearly 10 years ago now, it was in uh, Dakar, and where one person, one participant, decided to move from her organization about looking at climate change and imagining what it would be 50 years. This was in 2011, 50 years from now where we would be. And she decided to relinquish her organizational, very major organizational role, and to be there as a grandmother. And to think of her children, her grandchildren, and that is her contribution. That was her contribution. So that may happen here too, to make it personal rather than just institutional, organizational, or professional. That we have to engage with this with our hearts and souls as well as with our minds. So the design of the meeting, uh, no, and there's one other thing I'd like to mention is that I don't know how many of us would count ourselves as being belonging to subordinated, subjugated class, castes, ethnicities, religions maybe several of us, in fact. But how do people who are newly resurgent in the world imagine this? Imagine what is going on in the world. 
What do they see as their role? I can tell you from India that Dalits have saw, Dalits being the untouchables, saw, um, have seen historically that the British colonization of India was a major breaking point for the hold of uh, caste in India. So it's not that we necessarily share the same perspective. We may have different allies in the world at different points in history. So I think it's very important to know this and to feel this and to respect that there may be other views, other strategic viewpoints in the world. There's not a singular path for freedom and respect. This was Jai Sen, Senior Fellow at the School of International Development and Globalization Studies at the University of Ottawa, giving the opening remarks for a workshop titled Turning the Tables, International Development and the Games of Empire. The workshop was organized by Fayaz Bakir and Jai Sen on November 5th, 2019 at the University of Ottawa in cooperation with the School of International Development and Globalization Studies, the Joint Chair in Women's Studies at Carleton University, and the University of Ottawa, as well as the Development Student Association and the International Development Graduate Student Association. Inspired by the teachings of the elders of the indigenous peoples on Turtle Island, and by the work of social activists across the world, these scholars, developmental practitioners, thinkers, and students sat in a circle to critically engage on a discussion with each other on the great games that empires play to promote their economic and political interests and to maintain their global hegemonies. In a large part, as a result of these games, humanity is today at the crossroads of history, facing a stark choice between the survival of unregulated capitalism through empire and the survival of life on Earth. We therefore decide to come together to critically question the idea of development and to revisit the content, focus, and scope of international development. The time is also ripe to search for a new decolonized and more pluralist paradigm of what is called development. In this series of Turning the Tables podcasts, we are going to listen to the different contributions made by these participants of the circle. In this podcast, you will be hearing from Carolyn Laud, Senior Policy Analyst at Indigenous Services Canada offering her Invocation to Pluriversal Worldviews, and the keynote talk to the workshop given by Molly Kane, Executive Director of the Council of Canadians, on what she calls a changing world, emerging world politics and disorder. Okay, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Carolyn Lottie. I'm a Mohawk woman whose family has origi what originated from Gunawagi. So I can tell you that my lived experience is very complicated in many different ways around land. I'm technically a visitor on Algonquin unceded land. I have been a visitor my entire life in different parts of Canada. And I have not been allowed to go home to my homeland where my father came from prior to being sent to residential school in Northern Ontario. So I have lived away from my homeland for a long time. So indigeneity and land are very complicated things for someone like me, okay? And I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about how I tend to uncomplicate my complicated existence in both the civil service and in academia. So for the next 10 minutes, really what I wanna talk to you about is to help to deepen your understanding of indigenous worldviews and what they can mean locally, nationally, and globally. For me, it's an everyday thing that I think about. 
And so I'm always trying to figure out how to weave this into my day-to-day -day life, my day-to-day -day work, and then, of course, my academic work. So what I'm showing you is not meant to be a binary, okay? Please understand there could be many other circles representing other worldviews, but for the, just for simplicity's sake, what I want to show you are the distinctions between Western and Indigenous worldviews as we sort of tend to understand them in the North American context. So know that in Canada, that First Nations, Inuit, and Métis are distinct groups of Indigenous peoples. They have diversity amongst the diversity, okay? Each has their own unique history, cultural practice, language, traditional territories, and spiritual beliefs. So if you think that I was telling you that I'm complicated, I can tell you that the landscape of indigeneity in this country is far more complicated than I am. Most people, most indigenous peoples tend to share a relational worldview world that emphasizes spirit and spirituality, meaning all things are alive, including rocks. And in turn, a sense of community and respect for the ancestors, place, and the ecology. Relationships are the basis of who, who we are as a people and how we relate to the world. There's also this belief in the power of relationality with all of creation. These are things like power with as opposed to power over. In other words, humans are not considered superior to nature and all life is valued equally. Knowledge is gained through the experience of living and interacting with nature in places and experiencing its local conditions. Our identity is drawn from relationships and the land. Now, if I flip over to the Western worldview, you're going to see the differences. Western worldviews tend to be more hierarchical in nature rather than circular. Sandy Grande talks about the colonialist consciousness. And what she means by that is that it embodies hierarchical ideals of power residing at the top and considers man separate from and above land slash nature. These different under, differing understandings of relationality highlight the ongoing tension between settlers and indigenous peoples in this country. According to Grande, the colonialist consciousness also relies on technological advancements as the way of solving all problems, which is linked to this idea of progress as change and change as progress. For most people, this dominant perspective is what we know, live with, and tend not to question in our everyday lives. So I'm going to take you to something that's a little bit different that I've been working on. And it's this idea of enthide scene. So what enthide scene is, and enthide scene, you see how the arrow points to the crack and the jaggedness of the two pieces of the puzzle? That's enthide scene. That's the way that other worldviews come through the door. And we get beyond this notion of indigenous and Western eyes only. There are many other worldviews. It also is an opportunity 
to allow for the diversity of indigenous worldviews to come through that door instead of essentializing indigeneity, okay? So it's a way of respecting and bringing different worldviews into conversation together. The establishment of anti-scene as a common practice is meant to improve ways of doing things, generating new ideas and understandings, and strengthening the state of indigenous crown and indigenous settler relations. The basis comes from Elder Albert Marshall's idea around two-eyed scene. And generally, what he talks about is the fact that you need to rely on the strength of both eyes. Neither one is more dominant than the other. There are times when, they will when you will compromise, and one will lead and the other will follow, vice versa. Okay. On that front, some of the things that I see in terms of how anti-Idsean can be applied at the national level, is that this type of thinking and approach results in Indigenous peoples being, one, joint architects in the relationship, two, co-developers co of priorities, law, and policy, three, catalysts for unlocking the potential of Indigenous epistemological and ontological frameworks, and finally, equal partners in measuring, monitoring progress and achieving results. And I use this at work. I do a lot of work on reconciliation. And let me tell you, it confuses the heck out of public servants because it asks them to think differently about what they're doing. And I love it because every day, if I can help to move the system forward and to change people and to change the structure, then I am doing what I was meant to do as an Indigenous person. Okay, so the next wave, pluriversality. So the image speaks to the complexity of global relations as they exist in today's world. Lugay's artwork is about, quote, the value of life and relationships, the disposability of life, the dignity of labor, and the power of human gatherings to create change. This installation fits well with how to build a different path forward, one that embraces a pluriversality of worldviews. For Leroy Little Bear, worldviews arise from a culture or a society's shared philosophy, values, and social customs. This perspective speaks directly to people's interaction and interdependency with the land, the animals, and the people surrounding them. Mills, not unlike Little Bear, draws our attention to what he calls the indigenous life world. What he means by that is that the indigenous life world consists of a set of ontological, cosmological, and epistemological understandings which situate us in creation, and thus which allow us to orient ourselves in all our relationships in a good way. Indigenous scholars all point to the significance of engaging with the very real plurality of Indigenous ways of knowing, being, and doing within local, national, and global world systems. On the other hand, Laura Perez, a Chicana feminist scholar, brings the idea of decolonial love into the conversation as a means of recentering the sacred within humanity. She uses the Mayan culture and talks about the principle of in Lakesh, which suggests that humans are vibrant beings deeply connected with a universal vibration, implying 
that we are all related as humans. And I can tell you that in the North American context or in the Canadian context, we always talk about how we're all connected. So we're all related. So again, you start to see some patterns here. Um, I think what's really important is that this, this idea for me, these ideas appear to indicate that spiritual traditions and love can play a role in building a better global understanding of humanity. One that offers a decolonial move away from solely relying upon Western modes of thinking and being in the world. At the end of the day, where does this leave us? Well, I believe we need to step away from liberalism's epistemological racism in order to promote indigenous knowledge forms as part of the conversation. After all, pluriversality is about the coexistence of other cosmologies and epistemologies in the local, national, and global context. However, to do this, we have to create an ethical space. So what do I mean by ethical space? It's not my idea. It's Willie Ermine's idea. He's an Indigenous scholar from Canada. Essentially, what he talks about is the idea of ethical space for him really is about co-creating knowledge and change together. Okay? In its simplest, most basic forms, that's what he's getting at. What he argues is that a collaborative assessment of colonial structures and processes can assist in the cross-cultural identification of ethical, moral, and legal principles. For intercultural dialogue to counteract the coloniality of power, the subaltern legal, political, and epistemological frameworks must be on the same level playing field as those of Western European origin. Therefore, the inclusion of indigenous voices and worldviews is necessary at the local, national, and global context to achieve genuine reconciliation and to affect structural and people reform that addresses the deep inequality, oppression, and racism that is experienced by indigenous peoples across the world. Creation of an ethical space serves to also problematize liberalism's notion of there being only one right way. Did the keynote talk to the workshop given by Molly Kane, Executive Director of the Council of Canadians, on what she calls a changing world, emerging world politics and disorder. I'm very grateful to be here and look forward to the conversations that we'll be having in the small groups. I was asked to um, start off the, the afternoon with a few words. Um, in, in the context of uh, the questions that were asked by, uh, f for this workshop, um, the, specifically, I, I was... Uh, thinking about the sentence that says, in the context of the spiraling rise of storms at a world scale, we are confronted with the stark choice between the survival of unregulated capitalism and empire and the survival of life on Mother Earth. In the workshops this afternoon, you'll be able to discuss much better than I could ever do the specificities of the trends and trajectories of our world today. And these specific contexts are important for building our understanding. 
I'm not in a position to fill out those contexts and stories, so I won't try to. I do want to uh, rather contribute a lens and a way of seeing and listening to respond to the questions that you're posing uh, about the future of development studies and international development. And the question that you posed in the, for the workshop, do we all perhaps need to search for a new decolonized and more pluralist paradigm? So how is our understanding of what is happening around us composed? And from whom are we learning? How and what do we know? I am now working, as Joy mentioned, at the Council of Canadians. Um, it's a choice that they made in hiring me to bring in someone from outside the organization uh, for renewal, and that I made moving into that kind of organization to have a, as a new political home and occupational home, uh, an organization that's working more on the what we sometimes call the domestic side of, of uh, what's going on in Canada as a country in the world, dealing with its own histories of colonization and more explicitly on the corporate capture of the commons of our resources, wealth, and civic life. But my path to the Council of Canadians traveled through the international development NGO world and its worldview. And like many people, though, it didn't start there. Um, and I have dear friends and colleagues who've been learning with me in this world. And um, I want to say that, like me, there are others like my friends who are here whose experience of solidarity started um, with struggles with, for justice and peace in different parts of the world. In my case, it was an immersion at a tender age into the context of the Philippines in the early 1970s during the Marcos dictatorship. From that experience, I won't get into all the details, at least not now, but I, I, I kind of, without planning it, ended up working in what we call development education, international cooperation, and social solidarity, and learning all along the way with colleagues in Canada and in other parts of the world. As time went by, I became more and more concerned with the way in which that world of international development institutions and the aid industry in particular was affecting the way we understood international solidarity, coming from solidarity with movements for liberation and emancipation. And at a certain point, that contradiction became very hard to um, ignore uh, when I attended the African Social Forum in Bamako leading up to the Social Forum in Brazil at a time when we were also in Canada part of something called the Make, History, Make Poverty History Campaign, which was lobbying for increases in aid as a response to poverty in the world. And while I was at the Africa Social Forum, that was a week long, it was a forum of African um, activists from every region of the continent, if not every country, and from different sectors, youth organizations, women's organizations, students, and there were a lot of debates <laughs> among those organizations about what was needed for the African continent. And at that in that week that I was listening, as someone who was uh, there in order to bring back what I could learn to the advocacy work we were doing in Canada, 
I never heard anyone say Africa needs more aid as part of what was needed for the African continent. So that, that juxtaposition of the strongest campaigns for what was needed for development being aid and the fact that that wasn't even expressed by the people whose lives, uh, who were talking about their own lives and their own futures, um, sort of led me to uh, want to take some time to study aid in more detail, to study aid in terms of the political economy of aid and to study more the assumptions that are made about society when we decide that aid is the response to injustice and impoverishment. And so I took some time with the support of my colleagues at Interparis to, to, to look at that more closely. And I won't presume to tell you everything I found out because you're, that's what you're all studying. So I don't need to tell you that. Um, but I will just share a few observations that then shaped the way I, I, I now come at looking at international solidarity. Um, first, just that the development project itself is historically fraught and contested. And a lot of that history has been lost in um, our present common sense about what development is and what we study. So I think that historical look at what aspirations were in countries coming out of colonization and independence and what global efforts there were to express that definition of development and other definitions of development that were used in order to, as part of the Cold War, or in order to ensure that colonies remained subservient to the economies of the industrialized world. Um, so whether whatever version you think is accurate, the fact that it's contested, I think, is very important. Also, th this, this struggle between modernization and <laughs> emancipation in the definition of development that is fundamentally Eurocentric and racist in its foundations of, of colonialism, but also liberalism uh, as, a, as a racist framework. It, that development discourse and institutions never really transcended that, that Eurocentrism. Um, and that today there's amnesia of the paths that weren't taken, that I think it would be um, helpful for people to recognize that there were other projects um, in, the, in the 60s and 70s in those moments of independence. And, and this is not nostalgia. It's more, uh, I think, to remind ourselves that what we live in today is not natural law, that it's, it, it was, it's a historical moment. And there were other um, turns in the road that were defeated for different reasons, uh, but that you can find expressed in the Bandung Declaration and uh, also the United Nations Declaration for a New International Economic Order which is really worth looking at in terms of what people were aspiring to, to push back on the rising power of corporations. Um, it's actually a hard document to find, even on Google, <laughs> and to find the original. It's, 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 it's kind of vanished from popular uh, awareness. The, the, other, the, the fourth thing is it's in the rise of neoliberalism and the triumphalism of capitalism, We've had to deal with um, really rampant privatization and, and austerity, what's called austerity, um, to deal with the crises of capital. 
uh, not the crises of human beings, and they have created the crises of human beings, the, these, these um, policies. And they've also, I mean, we, in the South, we talk about structural adjustment, and, and now we talk about austerity, but of course it's been going on in the world now for, for a long time, and so I, I, I question how much is actually new and how much is just the consequence of processes that have been going on for some time. Uh, though that privatization and austerity, I think, led to a, a, commodific a commodification of care, a commodification of how societies and people look after each other, and the depoliticization of struggles for freedom to, to express those uh, cultural values of care and social solidarity. And then, because of that privatization and commodification, the integration of the institutions that claim and aspire to be vehicles of solidarity for civil society, of civil society, um, the, the integration of those institutions and their expressions of the aspirations of humanity into a logic and an industry that actually undermines the fundamental changes needed to deal with the afterlife of colonialism and empire. So these institutions are built on an assumption, the aid institutions that is, that we can generate a surplus out of a system that is impoverishing people and destroying the planet, and with that surplus, repair the damage that that same system is doing. That's the logic that we fall into that we have a difficult time challenging in our, in our organizations. So that, that logic of aid, uh, a few features, is that it talks about poverty rather than impoverishment. And that poverty is to be addressed or remediated through the redistribution of wealth from the rich to the poor. And that aid is a measure of how much people care about the suffering of other people in the world. So it translates solidarity into... Um, into an assistance from a white savior complex that again reinforces the, um, the kind of fundamental assumptions of white supremacy in the development project that is financed in the North and that serves the financial interests of capital in the North. Obviously not exclusively, but I'm talking about the aid structures. I'm not talking about all forms of wealth in the world. Any challenge to the logic of capitalism then in this world, in this industry, is dismissed as unrealistic. And I, have to, I think we have to question what is realistic about counting on this system to, to fix the problems that we have. It's the, you know, Einstein's definition of insanity that you just keep doing the same thing over and over and expect it to have different results. So that it has become easier to challenge, easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, even when we see all the problems that, are, that, that it's creating. So the logic, there's a logic of taxing a system that impoverishes and destroys living systems to ameliorate the consequences of its, um, of its rule. Um, some kind of similar to believing that you can tax war to build peace. In it, this logic does not recognize in any real way the finite capacity of the earth, 
and it continues to promote growth that is, in quotes, that is actually synonymous in its use with corporate profit. And it looks to technology to resolve that problem, the reliance on, on technology. So to confront these untruths that I think are perpetuated by that logic, I think it's incumbent upon us to, to, to affirm a new realism, that our world, that is humanity sharing life in a life-sustaining planet, is not in need of development, it is in need of repair. And reparations, as Alice Walker has said, is where the healing begins where the wound was made. So if we look at development, the response to inequality and injustice as a process of reparation, we have a very different <laughs> intervention to make in history than if we see people as undeveloped, un, not yet human, not yet modern, uh, there's a very different logic then that applies. In the face of environmental collapse, and in, including, but I think it's very important to say, not limited to the climate crises, climate has become frightening to people, but the actual environmental collapse that we're facing is much greater than just climate. And if we only look at carbon, we're not going to look at all those other issues like biodiversity, pollution, toxins, that are also the consequence of our um, economic system. It, 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 um, for some communities, and I know that people, all of you already are aware of this, um, the apocalypse is not coming. It, it has in many places already happened in terms of peoples who have experienced genocide and who experience war and cataclysmic dislocation. And so I think we also have to resist this view that we are waiting for the apocalypse and that we are living in a world in which these conditions and states of being already coexist. And the people who are living in those situations actually understand what it is to be human better than anyone in terms of what the real human condition is today. In such a world, we are not served by nihilism or fatalism, but by a realism that recognizes that our hard work is not simply to remain hopeful, but as the late John Berger has said, it is not that we have hope, we shelter it. And we sh so how do we shelter hope? I think we shelter it with this new realism. We shelter it by confronting that the damage, the damage done and commit to repair. One of the most inspiring examples for me of this posture was seeing American veterans show up at Standing Rock to help defend the people who were defending the water and ask for forgiveness as, as soldiers for the ways in which they did not defend the people and say that they wanted to present themselves now to defend the lives of the people who were protecting the water. Also, we can shelter hope by building and occupying liberated zones to build the world we want today, countering the reality of sacrifice zones, building solidarity economies, demilitarized societies, cooperative societies, neighborhoods, by actually trying to build in our daily lives at many different skills, scales the kind of society that we imagine for the future. We also can do this by defending and supporting those who, 
like the people in Standing Rock, who act locally in defense of the earth and their lives and our future, futures. And I think we can do it by valuing cultural work and proposition. Um, proposition in the sense that we have uh, imagination and beauty to share and we move beyond uh, the nightmare to actually sharing our dreams. Michelle Alexander, who's an African-American activist and scholar and author of the book, The New Jim Crow, um, wrote recently in an article called We Are Not the Resistance. She, she speaks about the mind of resistance. The mindset of the resistance is slippery and dangerous. There's a reason marchers in the black freedom struggle sang we shall overcome rather than chanting we shall resist. Their goal was to overcome a racial caste system, to end it, and to create a new nation, a beloved community. Similarly, those who opposed slavery didn't view themselves as resistors. They were abolitionists. Today, many of us in the movements to end mass deportation and mass incarceration do not want to simply resist those systems. We aim to end them and reimagine the meaning of justice in America. By the same token, many of those who are battling climate change and building movements for economic justice understand that merely tinkering with our political and economic systems will not end poverty or avert climate disaster, nor will mere resistance to the status quo. As the saying goes, what you resist persists. That's Michelle uh, Alexander. So to return to the question of this workshop on the future of development studies, from my point of view of working within um, activist organizations, social movements uh, dedicated to social justice, I would offer a few suggestions for students and scholars on what's useful for the role of public scholars. And let us, let us interrogate how we know what we know. What do we know of struggle, which is the crucible of reflection and practice? What kinds of knowledge do we have access to that can shelter hope by nourishing and arming the struggles of those whose lives are devoted to survival and the invention of ways of being human? I am appreciative of those full-time paid scholars and researchers who help me to understand power, who help me to find the cracks that let the light in, who follow the money, who look ahead of what is commonly known and seen in terms of emerging technologies of surveillance and social control. I am grateful to those who bring the stories of social courage and invention to me and to others so that we can be educated and inspired by those struggles as directly and as authentically as possible. I'm also strengthened by those who can tell me histories of struggle that have not penetrated the monoculture of Eurocentric, male-centric narratives of human history. These narratives, these glimpses into the back alleys and behind the veils and curtains of the world are food for thought and soul. To break out of the death march of capitalism, we need to let go of the logic of capitalism. We need to let go of needing to be correct in our conclusion that it sucks and risk the unknown territory of imperfect but real social invention. We need to let go of calculating the odds that other ways of organizing society could succeed because we have no guarantees. We have no guarantees, so we can't calculate the odds. Fundamental change, what is needed, 
necessarily takes us into the unknown, which even when desired is rarely a comfortable place to be. We need the audacity to draw on the lessons of our understandings of history and carry forward that understanding as roots to nourish new growth. For those of my generation, we can grieve our losses, but let us try to let go of nostalgia for a past that actually led us where we are today. Let us be bold. Let us stop accepting a logic that insists we can build pipelines to finance energy transition. Let us withdraw our consent for the logic that taxes on war will ever pay for peace. Whatever forms it has taken, development is historically and inextricably linked to the logic of colonization, sacrifice zones, and empire, the arrogance of superiority and white supremacy. In the face of the rising tide of racism, nationalism, and ecological collapse that we will discuss today, our future is possible only if we can live as humanity. That is our green sap. That is our only sanity, to be human. And we are only human if we are all humans. The world is disordered, but it is what it is. This tiger is not going to be persuaded to be a vegetarian. No leader and no ideology will deliver us. I often think of a conference from a I think it's about 10 years ago now, um, by the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group, looking at the surveillance that we're living under and the security industrial complex. And it was one of the most kind of overwhelming in its scariness portraits of what's going on in the world today. And a presentation by Ben Hayes of the organization State Watch in the UK. Ben said, what we need more of today is feral politics. We must recognize the limits of our social imagination. As Samir Amin said, we have to recognize that capitalism limits what we can imagine. And we have to recognize that so we can free our imagination. And that the system we live in limits our imagination for what might be possible. It is through changing the present that we open our minds to the possible futures. It is through praxis, through being and doing, as a graffiti I saw in Berlin last year said, do more things that make you forget to check your phone. Well, many people are doing that, just that, every day. And sometimes there is a rising tide that carries us forward with inspiration and surprise. Feral politics is the politics of defending and inventing the best possible life and future for humanity. Therefore, by definition, for all of us, all of us as miraculous fates of chance, how sacred is that? Peace will never be profitable, but it will be peace. Justice will not be profitable, but it will be justice. Universalist humanity is a path we must struggle to build together. That is the story that speaks to me now. Our survival as a species is dependent on our embrace of our full humanity and our active determination to build societies of repair, cooperation, and reconciliation. Thank you. The introduction to this podcast series was read by Danny Carroll. These podcasts were recorded and produced by Radha Masaki. 
The production of these podcasts received funding from the Ontario Public Interest Research Group at the University of Ottawa and from Professor Sani Yaya at the School of International Development and Globalization Studies at the University of Ottawa. For details and further information, please contact Radhamasaki at rhany at uottawa.ca.